0: Hi again, everyone. I'm Mark Gernay, and this is Play-By-Play with me. I am the me, my initials, M-E, and the Play-By-Play, under normal circumstances, is provided by my guests. And today's guest, this is Volume 1, Episode 10, in case you're wondering. We have the radio voice of the New York Knicks, and coincidentally, our second straight Ithaca College alumnus. Ed Cohen's with us. Hey, Ed, how you doing?
1: Mr. Renee, great to hear from you, and can you just record the intro to all of our lives? That is just perfect.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness gracious. First of all, serious note, how are you? How is the wife? How is the new baby who's coming up on a month old?
1: We're doing great. Thank you for asking. Uh, Obviously, a unique time to uh, bring a little one into the world, but uh, we're really blessed and enjoying every second with uh, Benjamin Miles. He was born April ninth, uh, seven twenty-nine in the morning. Uh, obviously, uh, it's it's certainly unprecedented to be in this position, given what we're all going through, uh, having a baby uh, during a pandemic. And we miss, you know, friends and family. And he obviously misses his grandparents. And that day will come, but. Again, we're just, we're blessed to be safe, healthy, home, and have as much time as we could possibly ask for with them.
0: Before we get into you helping your wife with half the workload, um, I do need to ask you because you brought it up. You travel for a living for the most part, right? Half of your games are away from home, and yet you have named your baby, you've given him the middle name Miles. I'm going to guess the travel thing had nothing to do with it though.
1: Zero. We we could have just thrown in miles with a Y and I guess there wouldn't have been a follow up, Uh, but it is miles with an I. Uh, Benjamin B is uh, partly in honor of my wife, Emily's uh, late paternal grandfather, uh, William Bill. And uh, we just liked the name miles. It had a nice ring to it. Funny thing is I guess if you have the three initials, BMC, I did not know big man on campus was a thing, uh, but many people have pointed that out to me
0: since. Mm. Okay, good stuff. Well, eventually he may be. Yes.
1: Do you want me to go? Would you like to record the first interview with him? I could go grab him right now if you'd like. (laughs) Don't (laughs) laugh.
0: You know, I I have a buddy um, who I used to work with at uh, 1010 Wins. His son- you might remember this from a few years ago, his son was mini Thor. Do you remember mini Thor? Little kid. He was at the time, I think five years old, he had the long flowing hair and he was working on pitching and they called him mini Thor. And this video went viral. It's now over, I think, 7 million views. Um, yeah, it's, it's incredible, but I got to do the first interview with mini Thor, um, who then, you know, a couple of weeks later was up at city field and, and hanging out with big Thor, um, but yeah, so I have broken this ground before. This would not be uh, this would not be blazing a trail necessarily, and I don't mean to bring up trailblazers. By the way, we did have uh, Travis DeMers on an earlier yeah. episode of this show. Speaking of of blazing trails, um, and I do want to talk to you about uh, about the situation regarding um, your team and um, and and how you're dealing with with its absence. But first, I, I need to ask you um, aside from What would be the latter part of your season um, and then getting ready for summer league? What are you missing the most with this whole quarantine situation? Well, in
1: terms of me personally in the job, it's funny because not that we were lucky enough to plan this. My wife and I had a sense obviously that, you know, the due date was April 23rd for Ben. So we were getting pretty close to Uh, knowing that he would be born under normal circumstances uh, within the last week or two, or hopefully soon after, if he was on time of the NBA regular season and, you know, Nick's not in a playoff position. So we knew we'd have time with him for the most part, which was going to be a blessing no matter what. But in terms of uh, what I miss, it's, The day-to-day, Mark, uh, being with our crew on the radio, obviously calling games with Brendan, the guys we travel with, uh, being witness to NBA basketball. I know it sounds cliche, but uh, I miss it greatly. And I'd say over the last week, it's funny because we've watched our share of old games, whether it be on MSG, SNY, yes, with all the Yankee broadcasts, certainly – uh, on all the networks, you know, we're we're trying to find something to fill a void, and we've probably watched our fair share of old games. Uh, maybe in my case, partly uh, the attention that I've given to uh, our newborn son has, you know, taken up a lot of that energy in recent weeks. But in watching a lot of the Linsanity broadcasts of the last week on MSG, and just a great one-on-one interview Mike Breen did with Jeremy Lynn, who was, you know in via Zoom from China, and just watching those games, the energy from the crowd, uh, this flash in a pan, legendary moment in team history, and just some of those games, the Raptors game in Toronto when he hit the game-winning shot, hearing Mike and Clyde on the call, it, it was eight years ago, but in many ways it doesn't feel like it's been that long. In some ways it feels like it's been even longer, but I think that for me really crystallized man i really miss it and and i'm sure if you ask anybody else um covers the league uh, who covers their respective sport whatever it is uh they would say the same uh, there's just something about all of us being together which we know we cannot do right now and we have to be safe and healthy but i yearn for that day no matter how long it takes when we're back in an arena uh, and the fans and everybody else are making it that special experience that we've come to know and love
0: Yeah, so we hear about these possible plans, Las Vegas, maybe now the last rumor we heard was Disney World in Orlando, where they have a bunch of broadcast-ready courts. And obviously the hope is to, you know, if the season is resumed, if not just jumping into the playoffs, that there would be some semblance of regular season completion at the home arenas. Um, Which of these scenarios do you personally Believe might be the most likely?
1: It's so hard to say. And I know that sounds like it's a very down the middle answer, but I just feel there's so many unknowns. I'd love to see the league go forward with the playoffs. If they can fit in the regular season, great. Ideally, you'd love to see them crowned as champion. I think it would be a great capper to what was really an intriguing NBA season. This is the first time in such a long time where it was wide open in terms of those teams who were real title contenders. Um, So I think there's that part of it. Uh, The other part too is just imagine uh, what that would do for fans, for people watching at home uh, to have that outlet, given what this country and the world is going through. So in a perfect world, it would be awesome to have the games back, but there are just so many questions and things that have to be answered for us to get to that point. testing, uh, teams getting back to practice, having that opportunity to do so uh, within reason so that the schedule doesn't spill into October, November. Uh, Where are you going to hold these games? Who are the essential personnel that are allowed in? Uh, Can the players get in game shape? Everyone has to be healthy. I, I just think there's so many things that have to be answered between now and that point for it to even be green lit and I hope that day comes Uh, I think if you talk to people within the league some people in the camp that they're going to do everything possible to make this happen and there are others who are naturally and rightly so perhaps a little more pessimistic Uh, but fingers crossed because if the games go on it's because it's safe and healthy. And I hope we get to that point.
0: Yeah. You and me both. Now I, I, you know, I've been looking at this, not trying to pour water on anybody's, you know, aspirations here, but you know, there has to be a certain cutoff point because if you go, you know, let's just say we're, well, we're going to try and end the season in November. Okay. But now how much of an impact does that have on next season? I think that's a major sticking point. And the season's after that. And, you know, you've got the Olympics now pushed back. And if guys want to play in the Olympics, it's almost going to be like a Pro Bowl situation where, you know, sure, I'd love to go to to Tokyo and play in the Olympics, but my team is still in the playoffs. I'm not going to leave my team to go play an exhibition.
1: And you have to weigh both sides of it, too. You have the Players Association, and perhaps that is a very heightened priority in terms of guys having a chance to defend their gold medal. Uh, You might have teams in the league in a similar boat, but also looking at their side of it. So there are many different camps involved in all of this. Uh, I do think, and the report came last week, I think from Woj, uh, that it is trending towards perhaps the league starting in December regardless. And I think in this particular case, you are at least buying some time that if you do come back and you complete the playoffs by September, three months, you're starting the season a few months after the normal start time in October, worst case, the league doesn't come back, you're buying more time for perhaps games with fans, or at least to have more answers. And if that's the case, I'd rather know now that there is that buffer versus waiting till September, October to say, we can start in the next month or so.
0: Right. And there is precedent there. There was when there was a work stoppage several years ago, we had a season that if memory serves, Nick's first game was at the garden against the Celtics on Christmas day.
1: Yep. Yep. You know, it's funny. I remember going back to the 99 lockout. And when they came back, there were plenty of three games and three nights. I didn't realize that there were a couple of instances where they did the same, uh, in the 11, 12 season. And the only reason it, it jogs my memories because Jeremy Lin was talking about it. I believe the game against the Nets, I almost said Brooklyn, I think they were still in New Jersey yeah. in uh, 2012, when he made his really first big impact with the Knicks when he scored, I think, 25 at the Garden. I think that was their third game in three nights, uh, if if memory serves me right from what he said this week.
0: I don't remember. I, I remember being uh, locked in on the Giants' playoff run
1: isn't so. that amazing
0: that... <laughs> I remember Linsanity. I just was away for most of it because the Giants had to, you know, deal with road games before they went to the Super Bowl in Indy.
1: Linsanity started days after the last New York championship. And it was cool because some of the old games that they showed, you saw Tuck and O.C. and Steve Tisch. I mean, the Giants were, if you were to go through the list of celebrities at each of those Knicks games, the right. Giants were...
0: Uh, taking up half a list. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so I, I guess I should ask you, it would be rude if I don't, aside from tending to baby Benjamin, uh, how else are you and the misses passing the time since you're spending <laughs> so much quality time together?
1: I would say I would define it as pre-baby and uh, since the baby. Uh, I got my taxes done in the early weeks of uh, us isolating, which was good. Uh, might be a little more challenging now with uh, with the little guy. Uh, we blew through Ozark, uh, which is one of our favorite shows to be. Okay. Uh, I'd say I went through a stretch of a few weeks where about the first two weeks home, I started to really miss talking to people. And I found myself just going through my phone and trying to reconnect with some people from the past, uh, which is the perfect time to do something like that and was really refreshing and nice to hear um, some voices on the other end who I hadn't spoken to in a while. It's been a little harder since with Benjamin, Um, things like that. Um, Certain shows. I feel like with the baby, we have MSG and MLB network on mute with old games kind of in the background. Uh, And I think just trying to keep tabs on everything. I don't know about you. I, I feel like I've discovered I might be a long sufferer of FOMO, fear of missing out, because Mm -hmm. I feel like if there's any article or interesting video out there, I'd love to see it or review it. And maybe that's not being out and about and working as we normally would, but I just find myself searching uh, for something
0: on certain days. Well, my wife would tell you that the the biggest benefit we've enjoyed for the last couple of months, is cutting into the Jeopardy episodes that had racked up Ooh. on our DVR. We started with, well, I won't even tell you, on my old DVR before I moved last time, I had 120 Jeopardies. And I was told that it would follow me to the new address. They did not. So I lost Ooh. 120 Jeopardies. Um, recently, we were up to about 82. And uh, as of last night, we're down to 50. So we're, we're making some progress.
1: That's a good run. Yeah, That's we're making some
0: serious progress in Jeopardy! land. And of course, you know, we've been watching, I mean, Ozark is on our queue, but um, um, we've been catching up with pretty much everything we could think of. Um, the DVR is down to, I think, about 48% full, which is very low for us usually at this time of year.
1: That was going to be my follow-up. When you when you mentioned the one hundred plus Jeopardy episodes, uh, what your percentage was on the DVR? So under fifty is really good.
0: Yeah, no, back then uh, it was one hundred and twenty Jeopardies and everything else that we had, and I think we were we we used to hover around seventy seventy five percent full.
1: When you're at ninety, it's that's where you have to put on things to do delete shows from the DVR. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what we do. We, we, you know, well, what's on, you know, what's on demand, what can we find here, there, you know, and all the other services. And then we wind up deleting stuff off. But um, yeah, I mean, th- that, that's been one of the, uh, one of the, you know, I, I keep telling people my dog is going crazy. You know, most dogs <laughs> would be like, Oh good. They're home all day. No, my dog is like, Oh my God, I have to cancel another party. <laughs> Get out of the house. I'm supposed to have the, friends uh, over and you're cramping my style here.
1: The walks save the days. Uh, I, When I can, try to get out, even if it's two or three miles. And I feel like the air, something that you would never really consider to be such a major part of your day normally, mm-hmm. it is at times, it's everything. And it might only be for 30 minutes. And, and you have to be safe, obviously, and cautious and practice social distancing. But when you can get out, it, it, it's a game changer.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing that we take that so for granted, and now it's so cherished that you know I'm almost begging my wife like Let me walk the dog. I want to go out and get some fresh air. No, no, I'll do it. It's okay. Um, so that's that's been you know again one of the uh, one of the uh, unforeseen I think uh, hidden benefits to all of this, if you will. All right, you you were talking about all these old games you're watching, um, which is sort of a perfect segue. Uh, This coming Friday will be the 50th anniversary of the Knicks winning their first championship, the Willis-Reed drama, and then Sunday marks the 47th anniversary since the Knicks' most recent championship win, which also came against the L.A. Lakers. Mr. Cohen, as the radio voice of the Knicks, I'm going to give you the floor to try and talk to Knicks fans. And soothe them, if you can, um, into um, a sense that it won't be another 47-year drought before they see a title? Can you do it? Well,
1: I guess the first thing I'll say is I have zero superhuman powers, um, so we will put that out there. Um, No, I'm not asking
0: if you can deliver a championship. I'm just asking if if you can rationally explain to them why they don't have to wait until I'm not going to do the math in my head, but sometime around 2070 for them to win a title.
1: Well, what I'll say is, I don't know if I have the power to sue, but I'll do my best. And uh, what I'll say is, Mark, uh, you know, obviously there's a new president leading the way in Leon Rose, and he will have roster decisions to make. Obviously, the draft is paramount because the Knicks have not one but two first round picks seven first-round picks over the next four years, and a lot of cap flexibility. And they've been in these spots at times over the last 20 years. Uh, The question is, can they put this roster in a position to really compete? It might not be next year, but perhaps in the coming years. It's still a really young core. And I think the joy the last couple of weeks before the season was suspended was – the play of a guy like Mitchell Robinson, as an example. Not that he wasn't playing well at the beginning of the year, but I really didn't see a big jump from where he was at the end of last year, to where he was really for the first half of this season. But just before the All-Star break, and certainly in the final 10 games or so, the regular season before the suspension, he was really starting to turn the page. You saw him more active, uh, putting the ball on the floor, getting to the basket, Uh, starting to expand his game, and I think it's different now in terms of what he's able to do working out privately, but if he can have a good summer when it's safe and healthy to do so, uh, whether it's on his own or three-on-three, five-on-five, whatever it is, I think that's going to be huge for his future. R.J. Barrett uh, was starting to really turn the corner towards the end of this season, especially with his outside shot. We saw that the last couple of games, and certainly the one that turned out to be the final one before play was halted down in Atlanta. And you have some other young guys like Frank Neelikina who had a much better year this year and Kevin Knox, who it was disappointing, but if he had just gotten another month in, I think we may have seen him kind of take that next step within this season. Uh, It was disappointing in terms of what he was doing at the end of last year compared to most of this year. But again, if we had just seen another month of these guys, I think that our perspective might be different going into next year. With that said, it's a young group. uh, There is a young core. And now it's just a matter of the team making the right decisions to put a good roster in place for now and the future. And they have the flexibility, at least, to do that.
0: And I want to get you in trouble. So if you don't want to answer this question, feel free to take a pass. But there had been a lot of support for Mike Miller to be kept on as the Knicks were playing fairly well when the season was paused. Is there any chance he's back next year, or do you think they're already looking at Tom Thibodeau or somebody else?
1: You know, Mike Miller, I'll say this, Mark, uh, in whatever it was, 44 games, I think. They won 17. uh, I give him a lot of credit because he didn't step into an easy situation with a young team mixed with a lot of veterans and I think he found a way number one those guys played hard for him and they were competitive more often than not and I think another thing that's overlooked to an extent they played really well on the road they weren't bad at the garden by any stretch but they had a lot of success on the road and that's a sign of a well-coached team a team that's playing for its coach and this team even after trading their best player in Marcus Morris there was still a pulse heading into the all-star break in the weeks after you can make a case that they were playing their best basketball of the season just before the season was suspended down in Atlanta uh, two months ago in, uh, in March. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the presence of Mike Miller. You know, it's funny. I, I did the game on television, his first game after David Fizdale was fired. I remember Bill Pito uh, who welcomed us in on the broadcast before he tossed it over to Clyde and I, he said, Mike Miller has the opportunity of his coaching life. He had been an NBA assistant for 22 games, and before that was a college head coach, and had come up through the G League. So you think about all of that, you're able to make an impression on NBA players in a very short amount of time. I think that says a lot. So my hope is that at the very least, he is part of this Knicks franchise because he has a lot to offer, and I think he showed that in the 44 games he could coach this year.
0: Okay. Um, this was, if memory serves, your third season on the job? Correct. Do I have that right? Okay. Yes. Uh, take us back, if you will, to um, night number one. Wow.
1: October 19, 2017. So we're okay. in Oklahoma City. And uh it was the Nixon Thunder, obviously yeah. that game took on greater importance once Carmelo Anthony was traded the month before and uh it was just one of those nights I could almost retrace my footsteps <laughs> you know, uh I've done many games over the years, uh nothing at this level, obviously, but this was a walking on water type night, and uh it's funny because. That game was on national television. So when we traveled out there, it was really just Brendan and I and our producer, Spencer, Julian. I think Rebecca Harlow was on that trip as well. But we didn't have the whole traveling party, right. um, which is a little more unique compared to most games that we do. But uh, it was just a, a game I'll never forget. Uh, obviously, the Thunder were rolling out. Uh, Carmelo for the first time, they had just acquired Paul George. There was a lot of excitement on their side. Uh, but I think I circled the bowels of Chesapeake Energy Arena like four or five times. I, I was like Jimmy V <laughs> among NBA broadcasters. I was just looking for somebody to talk to. Uh, but it was really one of those uh, those nights I certainly won't forget.
0: So that was your first road game. Correct. Talk me through the emotion, the thrill the adrenaline of walking into Madison square garden for your first home game as the radio voice of the New York Knicks.
1: Two nights later, it was against Detroit in October of 2017. And like any kid in the New York area, I've been to Madison square garden countless times for every event, Knicks games, college hoops, the Rangers, plenty of concerts. And it was as if I was walking into a different building. It just had that kind of feel. And I remember the first broadcast I'd ever done at the Garden. I yeah, I called the Manhattan Iona game in 2007 or 2008. And I had reported a couple of times on the MSG broadcast of the PSAL championship. I was on the sideline. And those were special moments. But this was obviously uh, an entirely different feeling. Uh, Just being in the Marty Glickman Memorial radio booth for the first time and signing on from Madison Square Garden. uh, There's really no way to describe it. It was just so humbling and special. And I don't think the Knicks won that game. They were up and Detroit came back. I think Tobias Harris went off in the fourth quarter from what I remember. But uh, certainly that was, again, I've been in the garden hundreds of times. It was as if I walked in the building for the first
0: time that night. You are an NBA broadcaster now for a living, which is pretty cool. Um, When you were growing up in the area, was basketball your sport? It was.
1: I like to think that, I love every sport for many reasons, but for me, the NBA, even the college game, um, that really resonated. Uh, I first called basketball games in high school, believe it or not, you know, in uh, Scarsdale High School, public access. uh, I did a number of our games that would air on replay throughout the week on uh, Channel 15, which... I had TV that had more than just two, four, five, seven, nine, <laughs> and 11, but there weren't a lot of channels even at the time on cable. So 15 was a good spot and you'd call the game and it'd be on replay and I'd come to school and, uh, everyone would say at some point, Hey, I saw you do the game, which was terrifying, you know, uh, right. 16 or 17 year old. High school. Yeah. You, know, you, don't, you
0: don't want right. you,
1: your biggest audience. Yeah. Uh, but for me, that always, there was a great comfort level with basketball. Uh, I'm not saying that I was a great player. (laughs) My outside shot was pretty good. The problem is that I, uh, I wore glasses from fourth grade up until, you know, late high school. And I was supposed to wear my rec specs, but I just hated the feel and the look. And it was a total waste of money. So I was always fearful of driving to the basket wearing my glasses, like I'd get poked in the eye and You know, glass would shatter my eye, Uh, so I probably wasn't as good a player or as aggressive as I needed to be. But I found a lot of comfort in calling games. That's for sure.
0: And you wound up at Ithaca. We mentioned this at the outset. um, You're second straight Ithaca alum in the footsteps of your pal Seth Cantor the other night. Um, How'd you wind up at Ithaca from Westchester County?
1: Well, first off, it's funny you mentioned Westchester. Seth is from Rockland, as you know. And, uh, I just remember we were two years apart. So I got to school as a freshman, he was a junior and he was calling the football games, running the radio stations. And I, I told Seth this recently, I, I looked up to, to him and so many of the other guys because they were, they were doing it with such ease as if they had done it forever. And they were probably in my shoes two years before, uh, Nervous freshmen walking out the campus wondering if it would click. Uh, But he taught me so much. Uh, So many guys did. I remember when I was a senior in high school, Mark, that uh, I went to visit Syracuse on a Monday and Ithaca on a Tuesday. And Syracuse is just an amazing broadcast school, as you know. Uh, Just the alumni reach, uh, the degree to which students come out of there and are so prepared uh, to do it right away. Uh, but I went down to Ithaca and there's just something about the campus and the town and the feel of it. It's a really inviting place. And the difference there in terms of the broadcast operation two radio stations, ICTV is it's encouraged that you're going to have a chance to be on the air right away. Now you might not be anchoring shows on television or calling football games right away, but there is a path to get the reps quickly. I remember on my tour, our guide said he was in the Park School of Communications and he was on the air right away reporting on field hockey, which I thought was the coolest thing. (laughs) Field hockey is obviously not my sport, but I said, you were on the air that quickly. And there was just a comfort level for me. And it was without a doubt the right choice. Just a great four years. I did everything from calling games I was sports director for two years. I even DJed. I had a classic rock show. Sophomore year, I think I had a shift that began at 2 in the morning. You'd walk back to your dorm and encounter deer standing in the front. Oh, wow. up in the fall in Ithaca, New York. Uh, I even DJed. Our biggest event was known as the 50-hour marathon, where I stayed up 50 straight hours, and each hour was – sponsored, and we donated all the money to charity, a charity of uh, the station's choice, Uh, myself and and my good friend Matt Corsetti, Crazy Eddie and MC Squared. Uh, But it was all about learning, getting comfortable, getting the reps, making mistakes, and Ithaca was was just the perfect place for that.
0: When you were a kid, who'd you want to be? Did you want to be Marv? Mike Breen? Who was it?
1: I'd say a collection of them. Uh, Marv is the big name. And I say this because, and it's so funny, because we're we're reminded of this in watching The Last Dance now. Uh, Marv was everywhere in the 90s on (laughs) Knicks games and uh, as the voice of the finals on MDC. And I think the other part of that is that if you look at the next generation after Marv, they idolized him. So, Mike, Iron Eagle, our Mm -hmm. guy, my mentor, Bruce Beck, obviously, Marv, massive influence on him. Uh, That generation, you know, Marv was their guy. They listened to Game 7 on the radio in 1970. Uh, But then for the next younger group, they still had Marv too. And they had the guys who were just a little bit younger than him who took what he brought to the airwaves and they replicated that. So I think Marv in a, in a strange kind of way has been passed from generation to generation among New York broadcasters.
0: It's like Marty Glickman, who was Marv's mentor. And that's what keeps the the thread going. It's amazing.
1: And Marty mentored so many, obviously Fordham students, but also he mentored a lot of MSG staff announcers, uh, Bruce, was uh, one of Marty's pupils, uh, a number of others it's It's amazing how that sound has carried over decades here in New York.
0: What do you consider the uh, launching point of your professional career?
1: I come back to the first job because the first one is always the hardest, and in many ways it's the one you remember most and it might not. Have been uh, the greatest stage, but for me, it was the most important at the time when I got out of Ithaca. My first on-air job was as the voice of Manhattan basketball, Manhattan College, and I had a list on a yellow piece of paper, which I think I still have somewhere. It's all crumpled up. I should try to find it uh, now that we have some time. But it had a a list of I, I wrote it out all of the sports information directors at New York area, division one schools within about a two hour radius of where I lived in Westchester, And I cold called just about everybody on that list. I think, you know, sad to say, I think a few people have passed away since then uh, a number of, of those folks have moved on to other schools or who I worked with quite closely in my career since, but luckily Manhattan had an opening at the time, and their SID was a man named Mike Antonacci.o Their athletic director uh, was the great Bob Burns, and luckily they saw something in me, and they gave me uh, just an amazing shot. And I was their radio voice for six years. I later overlapped a little bit with the Rutgers women's team uh, for six more years. So I I did college basketball on the radio in New York for nine years total, and. I did many other things between those two opportunities and landing the Knicks job. But I think in terms of laying the groundwork and helping me establish my craft and the feel of how to do this and how to do it the right way, uh, that Manhattan opportunity, especially that was the one that kept me in New York, uh, gave me the reps to do it consistently on the radio and uh, really do it. With a, with a really good program at the time. That was a, a team coach by Bobby Gonzalez that had been to the NCAA tournament and won a game a few years prior. So it was just a, a perfect entry into the business. And uh, I still love a lot of the people there, stay in touch and, and they're like family.
0: I would be fascinated if you can find that list to know who is still in their job outside of Joe DeBerry at Fordham.
1: <laughs> Joe's still there. I don't know if I called Joe because I knew of the power of FUV. Right. I probably didn't call Hofstra either because it's, and those are two just awesome sports broadcasting schools, broadcast schools in general. Uh, but those two stations to, to have the students call the games and cover the programs like they do is, is unbelievable.
0: All right. So three years on the Knicks beat uh, before that with the Rutgers women, a very successful Uh, Rutgers women's basketball program with Vivian Stringer. Uh, And before that, as you mentioned, the Jaspers with Bobby Gonzalez. Um, Of all the games you've had a chance to call over the years, what's the one play-by-play moment that stands out the most to you?
1: The one play-by-play moment. There have been a couple of buzzer beaters. I remember one my last year at Manhattan, and they had struggled that season but it was a random Sunday up at Marist and a young man who would eventually guide them to the NCAA tournament named Mike Alvarado hit a shot from three quarters court, uh, banked it in and we were right in front of the basket. I uh, got a perfect angle on it and that was a call that was a lot of fun. It made sports center and all of that. So that was really exciting. Uh, I think to be a part of uh, historic events, Mark, I think anytime you call a championship, uh, I call the number, uh, college basketball, men's, women's, uh, some conference tournaments, whatever it may be. When nets are cut down, that's always really special. And I think uh, another part of that too is when I worked the Olympics four years ago, which sounds crazy because it's going to be five years uh, in between summer games when they uh, take part in Tokyo next year now. But calling weightlifting – in 2016, and my last day doing it, I think it was spread out over 12 days. The U.S. hadn't won a medal in a long time, but they did in women's heavyweight, and uh, I think it was a bronze medal. But nonetheless, that was a really neat capper to two weeks. Even off the monitor, we did the uh, did the weightlifting round up in Stamford, Connecticut. But being part of that. Um, Witnessing an American winning a medal and ending a drought was, uh, was pretty cool.
0: Another perfect segue from you. I love this. I don't even need a list of questions. I could just go off of, your, uh, off of your lead all day. Um, you mentioned calling games off a monitor or calling the Olympic weightlifting off a monitor. And we've seen um, very recently, in fact, just earlier this morning, ESPN calling Korean baseball off a monitor. Um, not even from a studio, but with Carl Ravitch and Eduardo Perez from their respective homes, which has to make it even more difficult. But I was reminded uh, by you, in fact, before we started recording this, that you got to call Japanese baseball games on cable TV off of a monitor in Stanford, if memory serves, uh, a few years back. How difficult a challenge is that under normal circumstances, let alone you know, working from home?
1: I will say this. um, I've probably called too many sports off monitors over the years. And I think part of that too is just the age and the time I entered the business. But I remember my first game mark off a monitor was, I believe, in 2006 or 2007. And it was at NBA TV when they were headquartered in Secaucus before they moved down to Atlanta. And I believe it was with Tim Capstro, And I did a few other games with Allah Abu Nabi. But we called, I think, a G League team of all-stars toward China. And we did one of those games off a monitor. And whenever the NBA had international games that they voiced from a green room into caucus, I filled in on a few of those. So that was my first foray into it. And there are certain sports where you have to Admit to your surroundings. For example, in baseball, when they're showing the center field camera and there's a ball that's into the air, it can feel like it's going to the fence. And when they cut the high home, it's just behind second base. So you have to just by the nature of your logistics, you have to give it a beat. Basketball, you can see the floor just fine. It's hard sometimes to decipher who's the foul on. What's the call? You don't have access to the officials if you're calling the game courtside. And sometimes, if you're getting a straight world feed, they will cut to another shot. You'll miss that signal that you need. Uh, But what I learned over time, especially on the international events, I was calling Japanese baseball and Russian hockey. You have to nail the basics. I was prepared, and you want to bring that. that particular game but first and foremost nail the numbers nail the pronunciations know who has the puck where it is Uh, in terms of baseball don't miss an out or an at bat make sure you're keeping score because if you fall behind everybody's scurrying so those are a few pointers that i would offer for those calling games off monitors Uh, with regards to the Japanese baseball experience, it was uh, when I was one of the main announcers at One World Sports, which was headquartered in Connecticut, and it was over two seasons. And we did all of the Yomiuri Giants home games and some away games, but we basically were doing every game that was played at Tokyo Dome. The hardest part was, and we did the game solo, Friday night, which is five in the morning, so Friday morning, East Coast time. Night game into a day game, because Saturday the game starts at 1 a.m. I had no idea when to sleep and how to do it. So there were a handful of moments, maybe two or three, over my two seasons where <laughs> the third hour would be recorded and I would hear in my ear, going to break in three, two, and I'd startle and wake up and uh, I wouldn't get to one. Uh, very rare, but those were tough. Calling a game solo in a dark booth uh, at 5 a.m. and then 1 a.m. Uh, was, was a real test of stamina. But uh, it was a great experience.
0: That staggered sleep schedule, you didn't know at the time, would be terrific training
1: for fatherhood,
0: <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> it's. When amazing. have you been sleeping, by the way?
1: You know, it, it's... Emily and I take shifts. Uh, so we're both up usually around midnight, uh, and then we, we give Ben his, his last feeding before we both try to catch some sleep. Somebody wakes up usually a few hours later. Uh, the other person gets to sleep a few more hours, but then that gets flipped. Uh, it's a little different. I'll, I'll be honest. It's a little different now without any games going on or a specific place to be uh, in that we can find those patches to catch up on sleep during the day. Uh, I can only imagine obviously what is the norm, uh, but we're, ma- we're making the best of it.
0: Yeah. I don't want to get you in trouble, but maybe she should be giving you some extra responsibilities <laughs> while <laughs> you're is. home, right? You're, you're a captive audience. You have no choice.
1: I, I have, I have really aced cleaning the milk bottles. Uh, I, I've taken a, she's going to say that I'm crazy, but I've taken a stab at cooking here and there. Uh, lot of trips if need be uh to the grocery store though we've really tried to to keep those to a minimum but yeah i think you know we'll look back on this and given there's there's so much struggle and hurt you know in the world right now it's such a sad time it's a time where you really lean on one another even if physically you can't be around many people day to day uh but the real Saving grace for us right now is that we're here with Ben and we can give him as much time as we possibly can. It's a lot of work and I think there is that feeling of isolation without question. But uh I think we'll look back on this whole experience and, and feel very blessed that we've had this much time with him. All
0: right. We look back on your first day on the job or your first night on the job with the Knicks, your first home game. Uh take us through the first diaper change and the horror. How did it uh, how did it measure up to your expectations that first diaper change
1: my piece of advice uh to everybody who's wondering what's it like when you're in the throes of the moment you, you just don't have any choice you, you got to take care of business so i think that's that's how i would put it, it, it that's my uh my pearl of wisdom
0: <laughs> hold your nose and dive in that's it oh my goodness well, crazy Eddie, I was going to ask you, you know, uh, cause we had steakhouse on the other day, uh, Seth and, uh, his, uh, his rock and roll nickname. So yours was crazy Eddie.
1: Crazy Eddie. It's prices are insane. I, I never saw those commercials from back in the day, but, uh, you know, I was a, uh, eccentric kid at times. I think I got that nickname at summer camp and, uh, carried it into, uh, my my brief dj career my my old aol instant messenger was uh was crazy e25 so it was uh that was an easy one
0: okay remember the first song you played
1: i don't remember the first song i played uh but i'll give you this and i know it's you know it's crazy to look back 19 years I, i could tell you my first shift uh it was actually the night of September eleventh, two thousand one. Oh wow! I was I was a freshman at Ithaca, so I had I had been away from home for two or three weeks at the time, and obviously, it's that Tuesday, and uh, obviously a day we'll all never forget where we were when we when we found out what we did the rest of the day. But again, I was eighteen, and it's this very weird feeling. Uh, You're beginning this kind of seminal time of your life and you're four hours away from home and it sounds close, but you're basically in this entirely different world. Uh, And I remember it was, I think it was one of the first times I was ever going to be on air and I was going to host Classic Vic, was the classic rock show on 106VIC and everybody was hovered around the park school that day uh, I just remember, you know, people were consoling one another, and one of the older program directors, I think it was, it was Mike Schramm, who was either a junior or a senior, and I was walking around. He said, "We're we're continuing to program and broadcast, so if you're up for it, uh, you know, all systems go." And that was my first uh, first DJ shift. That was two hours, and uh, yeah, it was just a very surreal night, as you can imagine.
0: And business as usual, huh? Yeah, yeah. Which
1: I, I don't know how I would approach it if I could do it again. I think, you know, you're 18 years old. We kept the station on the air, and that was the that was the thought. With obviously a lot of news breaks, right? Uh, I think we were going to the ABC news feed uh, continuously throughout that two hour stretch. Yeah. But yeah, I I remember I I DJed. 10 to 12
0: on 9 nine eleven. Well, I think we're seeing now um, a lot of what we saw then is that people appreciate even more than usual, the sense of normalcy and the routine. And so to drastically change programming, um, there are a lot of stations that haven't done that um, at least here in New York. Um, everybody's sort of maintaining at least some semblance of Of status quo. All right, we do call this play by play with me. And um, one of the puns on the play is board games. And obviously, your son is not quite a month old, so it's not anything that you have to really consider imminently. But uh, when the time comes, Mr. Cohen, what do you expect will be the first board game that you expose young Benjamin to?
1: I'll give you two. Uh, Number one, I loved playing Clue growing up. The mystery, the layout of the house, the mansion, if you will. Uh, Clue is always fun, and number two. And I, Mark, I wish I could tell you the exact name of the game, but there is a. It's like a train board game from England, and uh,
0: so it's not Candyland. Oh,
1: it's not Candyland. Okay, <laughs> it's not can. It's probably too advanced uh, for someone Ben's age. I, he might have to wait. A couple of years to play this game Mm -hmm. but uh, the train game as uh, has been dubbed by my wife and I and some of our friends is a a terrific game you you basically are piecing together uh, a puzzle uh, which is a train essentially uh, and it incorporates a lot of geography and history and all of that Um, so the train game for me is uh, is a plus
0: interesting okay and how did you come across it
1: I think we played it at a New Year's Eve party, like six or seven years ago, and occasionally, you know, we'll come across it somewhere. Uh, but again, I need to find a name for you. It's uh, it originated in in England, uh, from what I can tell. Uh, but it's not it's not something we'd ever heard about until a couple of years ago. Huh.
0: All right. Well, this gives our audience something to do. Shoot us uh, a message, a text, a tweet. Clue us in. And I really hope that nobody on any previous episode mentioned this game and I forgot about it. That would make <laughs> me a, a horrible, horrible interviewer. Uh, last thing before we wrap up. Obviously, we're, you know, once we get the all clear, we're, we're going to try and resume our normal routines. But um, in your mind, on your list of things that you want to do when the quarantine ends in a big way, as opposed to, you know, go out, you know, parks are open, et cetera, in the last few days. Um, What's at the top of your list besides getting back to work?
1: I'd say to reconnect with as many family and friends as possible and uh, introduce our son to some people who haven't had the chance to meet him. Uh, In a weird kind of way just to say hello. I don't know if it's going to be with a handshake or a high five or an elbow pound or what. I just don't know the feelings we're all going to have when we're out and about amongst people, but I really miss, and I know it sounds uh, rudimentary and and corny, but I, I miss interacting, Mark, with, with people who I call friends, family, coworkers, you know, we should get lunch sometime, whoever it may be. Uh, I, I think there is, there is a distancing that we have to abide by uh, that is not always easy at times. And I think for me, uh, that's something that I, you know, I really look forward to is just to, to see people again and interact face to face. It's, I can't believe we're speaking in these terms, but little things that you naturally would take for granted uh, can
0: mean so much. All that and more. And I I miss hearing you calling, Knicks games.
1: Oh, I miss it too. <laughs> I, I miss it in so many ways. And believe me, I've, I've recounted that, that last night in Atlanta uh, too many times to count. Uh, because it's special. And uh, just the thought of being amongst the crowd right now doesn't feel right this second, but one day will. Uh, yeah, we, we love what we do. And uh, certainly for me, you know, being courtside or up in the booth, calling next basketball, it's, it's something I dreamed of as a kid. To be doing it now uh, it never gets old. And I think when the time comes and we're all back somewhere, some way, uh, we will certainly come to appreciate what it's all about.
0: I have one week left in my semester at St. John's, and I would be absolutely remiss if I don't ask you for um, the best piece of advice you ever got about broadcasting as a career and the best piece of advice you could give to a prospective broadcaster?
1: I'll leave you with a couple of quick tenets for me. Uh, number one, obviously, I've, I've learned so much from, from Bruce Beck and his three uh, points of emphasis are always preparation, attention to detail, and relationships, which I think in any walk of life, we're trying to adhere by every day. Uh, But with regards to your students, I'll pass along something that a broadcaster named Ari Wolf told me about nine years ago. He said, as we were speaking on the phone, and uh, I was referred to him by uh, actually an Ithaca grad, who was a coworker at the time who knew Ari out West. And Ari said, a lot of people can call games and they do a great job. They're really good. At the end of the day, be the person who treats everybody with respect. Be somebody who's easy to work with and is professional and comes to work every day, uh, besides doing a good job, you know, because if it comes down to you or that other person, who maybe doesn't take the same approach, who would you rather work with? And I think treating others with respect, treating them the way you want to be treated is, is everything.
0: Last note on Brucey, his acronym there is PAR for a golf guy. I love <laughs> That's it. That's right. I love it. Look at you. I love it. He's the best. He's, a, he's the best. He's the best.
1: He's the best. Um, and by the way, uh, you know, I can only imagine what it's been like for you teaching classes via Zoom and everything else. But uh, I will say I, I think a lot about the current college seniors, high school seniors. Uh, I know how hard a time this must be to have this, you know, magical time in their lives affected by all of this. So just know uh, when the time comes, you'll all be ready as graduates to enter the world and make a lasting impact. And we recognize how how hard this is. And Mark, I remember my last semester of college, I was 22 years old, it was just an amazing time. And I, I sympathize with a lot of you who might be listening right now, who um, that experience is altered
0: by everything going on with the pandemic. I wish I could say I remember my senior year, but... <laughs> It's a long time ago and it's a story for another day. Ed Cohen, I I do appreciate the time. I I hope you and the family, uh, please stay well, um, stay sane. And of course, uh, as soon as we're done here, go wash your hands.
1: I will for sure. Diligence. Without question. Mark, it's it's always a pleasure. You're a great friend. Uh, You've been a terrific influence on me and so many others. And uh, always a pleasure to join you, my
0: friend. That's Ed Cohen. I'm Mark Arne. Hey, Crazy Eddie, thanks a million for stopping to play by play with me.
1: My pleasure.